Let me invite you to turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 this morning. And while you're turning there, let me uh, also encourage you to be with us tonight as we come to the Lord's table, but also to let you know that, uh, as we often do, uh, just almost annually, uh, the October celebration of the Lord's table, we also use the offering that we do for benevolence uh, to go for the children's home in Tanzania, Tumaini. And so tonight's offering will be connected to that. Uh, we have the opportunity to, to have started that uh, orphan care ministry for uh, children, orphaned and abandoned children in Tanzania uh, many years ago now, and God's graciously provided through our church for that. And so I encourage you to consider a special gift tonight for them. Uh, I think you may know the word tumaini means hope. And because it was started to provide hope uh, for orphaned and abandoned children, both in this life, obviously uh, being without a home and parents and someone to care for you is, is a very difficult situation. So providing that provides hope. But beyond hope in this life, the goal is to introduce them to the hope of eternal life found in Jesus Christ, that there is an answer uh, from God for the greatest threat against us ever, death and separation from him. And we can have hope in Christ. And actually, that's what Paul's been drawing our attention to here in Romans chapter 5, that we have a hope, I used the word last week, that is invincible. It will never disappoint us. It's not just a wish. It's not something we, we sort of like uh, click our heels and hope everything works out, but that it actually is an unshakable confidence in the promises of God to us in Christ. Tribulations cannot destroy it because they actually are something God uses to trigger transformation in our lives. So, Instead of trouble coming into our lives and destroying our hope, God's work through the circumstances we face actually increases and strengthens our hope because we see Him taking those things and forming proven character, and that proven character leads to a greater hope. If God's doing this work in me, then He's going to bring it to completion. But also that hope doesn't disappoint us because in the midst of it, God has caused his love to be poured out into our hearts by the gift of the Spirit. So God gives us a fresh appreciation and experience of his love for us, which anchors our hope. But here's the thing that most of us could recognize, that if it was just on whether we feel loved... If our hope was tied to that, there are many times uh, our hope would see diminished, seem diminished, because feelings, by their very nature, can sort of ride the waves of what's happening in our lives. So Paul immediately shifts to something that's even deeper than that, and that is the outward, objective expression of God's love in the work of Christ. And last week we saw really that that's the foundation, the bedrock, the timing of God's love to us while we were yet sinners, right? So God's love didn't come to us because we were worthy of it, because we deserved it, because we drew it out of him, but it actually sprang from within his own heart 
set on us when we were in fact described in the words of Scripture, ungodly and sinners. At the right time, at the right time, Christ died for us. But it wasn't just the timing of God's love. It actually was the nature or character of it. The text is very clear. He died for the ungodly. He died for us. God sent his son, right? So the sacrificial nature of Christ's death shows us how deeply we are loved. And the fact that Christ died in our place as a substitute guarantees that we ourselves will never be the object of God's wrath, but always and only the object of his love. But Paul's not done yet. Right? He, he wants to actually take and build on that foundation in a way that drives it home to us so that we are confident, we are unshakable in our hope. And that's what he does in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at the scriptures together, please. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So Paul's going to go past. It's not just timing, it's not just character, but it is also the accomplishment of what God's love did. That God's love has brought to pass a standing for us which, which settles this issue. And Paul makes an argument. Sometimes we'll, we'll, we see it in Scripture, but we even make it, right? He's going to argue from the greater thing to a lesser thing, right? If God did the greater thing, certainly he will do the lesser thing. And, and that doesn't diminish the lesser thing because actually he's moving toward the lesser thing as to why we can have an unshakable hope. But in order to understand what Paul's doing, we have to grasp how much God has accomplished for us through the display of his love. Then much more will this be true, right? It will be certain that it has come to pass. So what is the greater thing in this passage? What is the, the greater thing that becomes the much more? And that's what he starts with by saying, look at what God did for us when we were his enemies. Right? Look at what God did for us. And there's two things, three things really that are at stake here, but the two keys to them in, in verse Nine, it says, having now been justified. And then if you look into verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. So, so we were enemies with God and God gave us his righteousness, having now been justified. And God brought us into a relationship with himself. We are reconciled. Right, so we need to think in terms of what's going on in the text of Scripture. Right, so, so if I could, I'm going to 
I'm going to try and keep these organized for us, thinking this way. All right, so, so we've already seen in, in 6 or 8, we were sinners, we were ungodly, and that's really what the justification addresses. We are guilty before God. I mean, we, we have committed sins which have brought us under guilt and therefore the consequences of our guilt. We're guilty before God. But not only are we guilty before God, we're actually alienated from God. There's an obstacle in the relationship between us and God, which constitutes us as enemies. You see that word used in verse 9, right? When we are, I'm sorry, verse 10, while we were enemies, right? So, so we have, we have a, a sin problem and we have a conflict with God. And God moves toward us graciously to solve both of those. Right? When we talk justification, here's what we see what God's done. And everything in the book is argued up to this point in the book of Romans is, is that it is the gracious act of God by which he declares us to be righteous and then treats us like that. All right? and, and it's really important to get the fullness of that. All right? It's a gracious act of God. God does it out of his own grace and kindness and it's a declaration. Because here's, here's the reality. Okay, I am here this morning. I'm a sinner. Right? I, I am guilty before God. I actually never stopped being a sinner. It's impossible for me to stop being a sinner. Yet God declares me to be righteous and then treats me as if I am. That's justification. Now look, look here in chapter 5. Go back to chapter five or chapter 4 and verse 5 just to make sure that we're clear that this is a legal standing before God because this is really important. Notice, notice in verses 4 and 5 what Paul says about this justification. All right? Verse 4. Chapter 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor or as a gift, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So we're going to come back to this, but this all happens by faith. Right? But here's the key to see in the middle of verse 5, right? Notice who God justifies. God justifies the ungodly. Oh, you get that, right? God doesn't make the ungodly person godly, then justify them. God actually declares as righteous the one who is ungodly. Because of the way the language of the text is, you can understand that because notice the word credited in verse 4, right? And credited at the end of verse 5. It's, it's the credit of Christ's righteousness applied to my account while I am still a sinner. Okay, and... and and this is really important because it's the difference, honestly, before between salvation or condemnation. 
Because if you think that you have to go from being ungodly to being godly before God will justify you, you are without hope. Because you will never be able to clean away the spots of your sin nor change the very fabric of your nature as a sinner. You can't do that. It must be that God looks at you and counts you as righteous because of the righteousness of someone else, Christ. Okay, so, so here's Paul going, all right, we were guilty, but God did what for us? He justified us. He declared us to be righteous, counting to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right, the other category that Paul uses is reconciliation. And look back at chapter 5. Here's where we stand as enemies against God. Right? And, and, and what we sometimes people like to try and, uh, try and split this when actually it's both of them. Right? Because we're enemies. And so it's clear, and, and from the book of Romans up to this point, it's clear that man rebelled against God. And, and chapter 8, verse 7 says, that the natural man is hostile against God, right? So, so we are opposed to God. That's a part of the enmity. But it's not right to think, well, that's just our problem. God's over there and he's okay with us. We just need to stop, stop fighting against him. No, beginning in chapter one, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, and, and those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, so our very act of rebellion is hostile against God, and because it's hostile against God, we've set ourselves up as his enemies, defying his right to rule and rejecting his rightful worship, and the wrath of God is against that. So there is... There is hostility between the sinner and the creator. Right? And, and that's not the kind of hostility because of the very nature of it, right? The rejection of God's right to rule, the rejection of God's worship. That's not something you can just say, hey, let's just, let's call truce. Let's bygones be, be bygones. We should get along. Right? The very fabric of mankind's unbelief is that it actually suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. It worships the creature rather than the creator and turns toward ever-deepening depravity. And God's righteousness cannot just be swept under the rug. It must be dealt with. But here's what he says about us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That God took that enmity, that hostility, Ephesians 2 says, and he removed it, nailing it to the cross of Christ. And we'll come back to that component of it. But that God actually brought us from, from enemy to family, that when we were 
hostile against him, he actually gave us access to himself and adopted us into his family. We were reconciled to God. All right, so so here's the thing. In order to understand the, the logic of Paul's thought, we have to understand what we were and what God did for us. Right? While we were sinners, while we were ungodly, he justified us. While we were enemies, he reconciled us. Much more than, right? So that's Paul's argument. If God did that for us while we were anything but righteous, and anything about but lovable and loving him, much more he will do something for us. And that comes at the end, right, of verse 9 and verse 10. Second half of verse of 9. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Look at the end of verse 10, right? We shall be saved by his life. Okay, so, so God will do these things for us now because we are His. The save from wrath is, is pointing toward the day of God's judgment when He will deal with sin and sinners who have rejected Him, and it will be the outpouring of His judgment, His righteous and holy wrath against the sin of those who have defied Him. And here's the core of our hope. Remember, this is all Paul is, he's just sort of unpacking for us why we have hope of God's glory and why hope will not disappoint. Because the very core of our hope is, we were like this, but look at what God did for us. So, so much more, when the day of judgment comes, he will do something then. He will save us from his wrath. We will be ultimately rescued from the judgment of God because of what God has already done for us. He will certainly do that. Okay, that's, that's what he's trying to show us. And, and so here, here's where we live right now. Okay, the day of God's judgment is coming, and here's the battle that can happen in the human heart. Is it going to be okay with me then? Right? I mean, when I stand before God, I mean, here's the deal. I'm a sinner. Right? I, I am guilty. I have broken God's law. There are times in my heart where I find myself loving the things that God hates. Living short of all that God's done for me. I mean, am I going to pay for that someday? Right? Am I going to, am I going to get hammered when I show up and it's clear what I'm really like compared to the glorious, radiant holiness of God? Am I just going to like, melt on the spot. And here's my hope. I was a sinner. I was his enemy. And God said, I'm going to clothe you in the righteousness of my son. 
I'm going to bring you into my family. There was nothing in me that deserved the righteousness of Christ. There was nothing in me that deserved to be taken from his enemy and seated at his table. That wasn't based in me. It wasn't something that I achieved, something I accomplished, something that I deserved. So why would I think if God did those things for me when I was completely undeserving of them, why would I think just because I don't deserve to be rescued from his wrath, he's going to go, eh, I put up with you enough. No, if he did this, certainly he's going to do that. That's what Paul's saying. Much more than if we've been justified, if we've been reconciled, much more than we shall be saved or rescued from his wrath. We shall be saved in the day of judgment. He will not, he will not disappoint those who've trusted in them. Right? And we, uh, we need to constantly have our minds, uh, I think, reminded of this because we've taken and we sort of flattened out the timeline of God's salvation. Right? And, 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 and I think, I think it's weakened. It's weakened our sense of the gospel because here's the reality. I mean, yes, it's absolutely true that we can say about believers who've trusted in Christ, they are saved. But what we've tended to chop out of the equation is that we will be saved. All right, look, go to chapter 13 for just a second and see how Paul describes this in biblical language, all right? Because we, we need to think about this. 1311. Romans 13.11 says, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Look at this explanation. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So he's, he's talking about points in time, right? You believed, and because of that, you were saved. But there is still a salvation out in front of you that is, you are now nearer to it than when you believed. Because God's work of saving you isn't complete until you have been rescued entirely from the judgment of God. You have been given your resurrection and, and you are fully made like Christ. So here's, here's my concern is that we take and we just sort of chop it off and we only talk about this part of it, right? And, and here's the thing that can happen. And I think this is a part of what's going on in Romans. I mean, life, life in a sin-cursed world is a full contact sport, right? Sometimes it can beat the daylights out of you. I mean, th- think about, I mean, we're, we're here. Uh, thankfully, Michigan has never had a hurricane. But you know, this morning, there are churches of Bible-believing people 
who I know of one, for instance, in the middle of the hurricane stuff, they're going to have a short meeting in their parking lot because their building's obliterated. And when they sent out the invitation, everybody said, please be careful. And we know some of you are in desperate situations. So, you know, if you can come, come, but don't risk yourself or we understand. So it's possible this morning we could be believers sitting in a parking lot thinking about how we have just had everything that we own and almost everything around us taken away by a storm. Could have been all wiped out, including people we cared about. And you know what? Because because so much of contemporary Christianity focuses on the here and now and the gospel being the answer for just here and now, it makes life go better. Everything's you know sweeter with Jesus, and everything's going to be wonderful. And then you find yourself in absolute devastation. Or you come walking home from the doctor with someone you love who's been told they don't have long to live. Or you're watching things just sort of seem like they're crumbling all around you. If your hope is only attached to right now, it's, it's going to be woefully short of what God actually has promised to you. Because the thing that will sustain you is a hope which is not just a hope in Christ in life, but a hope in life and death. Right? That, that, that even this moment and this affliction and this tribulation is not supreme. It doesn't rule. It is under the rule of a God who has a plan for your eternal redemption. Right? It, is, it is important for us to recognize that because it's necessary for the believer, I think, to be strengthened in the midst of all this. But I think it's also important for our gospel preaching. Right? We clearly live in a day where we're talking about the wrath of God. It, it, it just immediately sort of looked down on. I mean, think about the shift in our culture. Right, Jonathan Edwards hailed as one of the greatest American theologians ever, instrumental in God's work in the Great Awakening, and, and, and then someone comes along and sort of cherry-picks one sermon among a whole boatload of sermons that he preached connected to it, but one becomes sort of symbolic of it, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and some of us are old enough to have been taught about that outside of even religious context as a great work of American history. And now, now not only are unbelievers, but even believers looking down their nose at Edwards talking about the wrath of God like that. Why would you talk about sinners in the hands of an angry God? I mean, God loves us and God, you know, God wants our lives to be, 
you know, to be restored. And, and it's all like, let's get rid of this wrath and anger thing. And, and, you know, we just need to have a message of love. But here's the thing is, is, uh, you can talk whatever you want about the psychology of it. I mean, I'd prefer you talk about it in another room, but, but you can talk about it all you want about people need to hear this, that, or the other thing. But when you look at the, the message of Scripture, the promise of the Gospel is that God will save us from wrath. And if you toss that out, what is God saving people from? I'm really... What do I need to be saved from if I don't think about it in terms of God's wrath? Well, you say, well, you need to be saved from your sin. Well, why do I need to be saved from my sin? Because the wages of sin is death, which is the sentence of God's wrath against sin. Right? If I just sort of cut that all off, then I really do start to have a God who's more like a divine therapist to make my life be better. Why, yes, I need to be saved because you know, I'm messing up my life and God will come along and help me fix it. i got problems in this thing and problems in that thing and God will be my little spiritual and personal repairman to fix my life up. And it all becomes about God helping me be happier instead of me recognizing my guilt before God and there's condemnation ahead and I need to be rescued from that. And folks, that's what Paul preached. I mean, he, he showed up in the church of Thessalonica. It wasn't the church, it was the city. He came there just having gotten beaten at Philippi. And he says, we were bold in our God. He preached the gospel and he was sure they had gotten it. They really got it because they had turned from dead idols to serve the living and true God. And then listen to the rest of this. And to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the wrath to come. You see what Paul preached? Paul preached, hey, there was this, this one who came from heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross, rose again, ascended to heaven, and one day he's coming, and when he comes, he's going to come in righteous judgment, but he has sent word that you can have peace with him and he will rescue you from the wrath of God if you'll put your trust in him. The whole offer of the gospel is an answer to the problem of my sin and the consequences it brings and the sin of mankind and the consequences it brings. The hope is, is that God justifies sinners and reconciles them so much more when the day of judgment comes. We won't be under the judgment. We'll actually be received into the presence of God. We'll be welcomed as his people because of what God has done. You see, righteousness, justification, 
answers God's wrath. Right? God's wrath is poured out against sin. And if I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, there is no sin to receive God's wrath in God's book. I've been counted righteous. Right? So I think that's a part of the illustration of what happens at the Exodus. Right? The blood of the lamb was put across the doorpost and the avenging angel passed over. The person who's under the righteousness of Christ, the, the judgment of God will pass right over. They will never experience the wrath of God. Reconciliation makes me no longer God's enemy, but actually God's child. And so when he begins to Go to war with his enemies. I'm not going to be one of those. He doesn't count me as an enemy. He counts me as his child. I've been reconciled. So it's the righteousness of Christ and the reconciliation that answer both wrath and hostility. They're taken care of in Christ. And that's why it's so important. Go back to chapter 5, please, if you were still hanging out in chapter 13. Because what we have to see here is that, that if we think our righteousness is based on our actions, or if we think we have a relationship God be, with God because we made peace with Him by our actions, then our hope is on incredibly shaky ground. Right? Don't miss. I am a sinner. So I can't justify myself. Right? I was an enemy of God who couldn't make peace on my own. So if my hope is built on something I do to achieve these things, then it's going to be shaky. Right? I cannot have any sense of security based on my performance. It offers me no real security. It offers no lasting hope. And in fact, it may actually undercut the only hope I have. Because if I'm looking to myself, I'm not looking to Christ. And the only security that we can have, which is unshakable, is found in this passage in what Jesus Christ did. Look at the language Paul peppers these verses with, all right? I'm going to I'm going to read them and I'm just going to stress them as I go, right? Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Do you see the, the emphasis that Paul puts here? Right? It is the sacrificial death of Christ that makes this possible. All right? I'm a, I'm a sinner. So I need justification. And how does that happen? I haven't been justified by his blood. I'm an enemy and need to be reconciled. How does that happen? Having been reconciled through the death of his son. 
Right? So the thing that stood between me and God was my sin, and the answer of God is Christ's blood, the death of his son. Right? And those are set parallel to each other, so they're, they're essentially explaining the same thing. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ atones for my sin and removes the obstacle between me and God. Right, the hostility is taken in the death of Christ and removed so that I can come to God through Christ. Right, it's the work of Jesus Christ to accomplish these things. Both justification and reconciliation are accomplished by his death. And justification meets the demand of righteousness both through the well, we sometimes talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ, that is, he obeyed everything that God said to do. He never disobeyed anything God said not to do. So his life was absolutely perfectly obedient all the way to death on the cross. Right? So, so without his active obedience of fulfilling the law of God, his sacrifice would have no meaning. He would have just died like every other sinner. But he wasn't. He was perfectly righteous. And his death, therefore, was the payment of someone else's debt. Mine. The debt of sinners. And because of that, his righteousness can be the answer for my unrighteousness. Reconciliation through the death of Christ is the way in which the enemy is brought near to God. We have access to God now through the Son. We're no longer cut off from Him and alienated. And in fact, the power of what Christ has done achieves it. But there's an interesting little insertion at the end of verse 10 because we see two times death, justified by His blood, reconciled through the death of Christ. But notice that Paul sort of throws a little bit of a twist into it. At the end of verse 10, he says, we shall be saved by his life. And, and the language is parallel to by his blood. And I believe what Paul is saying here is it wasn't just his death that accomplishes this. It's actually his resurrection and his present life that does it. Look up to chapter 4 and verse 25. You can see the emphasis on the resurrection. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification or for our justification. Look at chapter 8, and you see Paul doing the same thing in chapter 8 when he's talking about the security of the believer. Start in verse 31, 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is or who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You see what Paul's arguing here? Okay, the, 
The reason you actually are justified is because Christ died and you are reconciled through Christ's death, but it's not just that he died, he actually lives for us. So one day when I do stand before the judgment bar of God, there will be no accusation that could condemn me. Because it's God who justifies. There can be nothing laid against my account which will lead to my condemnation because it's Christ who's my intercessor. He died and rose again. So my hope is not in that I somehow can live up to what God's done for me, right? He, he sort of gave me the, you know, the jump start with justification and reconciliation, but now it's up to me to live up to it, and hopefully when I get there, I'll find out I did okay and God accepts me. Not a chance. Right? It was the work of God here. It will be the work of God there. My hope is not built on myself. It's built on what God did for me through Christ. His sacrificial death, His victorious resurrection. And that Christ is the mediator between the Father, between God and me. And that's why he says, in, back in chapter 5, these words that show up as through. Right? Look at the end of verse 9. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That's Christ. And then he says at the end of verse 11, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Christ is the one from through whom all blessings flow to us. All right, so, so, all right, I'm, I'm a sinner. Guilty before God. Hostile against Him. Wanting to do my own thing. And because I'm hostile against Him, I am alienated from the life of God and God's wrath is upon me. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2. He said, who were by nature the children of wrath. And he says, we were one of those. Right? But we've been made alive. But we were by nature the children of wrath, under the wrath of God. But, but now I find myself, and no, don't miss the two times it says now in there, having now been justified, through whom we now have the reconciliation. So, so I can stand here today with this reality. Right? I actually have been declared righteous by God and He treats me as if I am justified by His blood. I am a part of God's family. I have been brought near to Him. I'm reconciled to God. Even though I know in my heart I still sin and I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So how is this the case? By His blood. Through the death of His Son. Through Him. Through whom we've received the reconciliation. So my life now is hid in Christ in such a way that God sees me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
He sees me as the, the brother of Jesus. Right? Because Jesus is going to be the firstborn among many brothers. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, I and the children which you have given me. Right? I, Jesus is my only hope. And so as I make my way toward the day of judgment when God's wrath will be poured out, I can have my head held high, not because of me, but because Christ has atoned for my sin and he is my redeemer. He's my mediator. He's my intercessor. His life guarantees my life. It's his work. It's his obedience. It's his sacrifice that is my only hope. And, and I need no other. I need no other because it's perfect. It's full. Right? We sang it last week, right? That last verse of in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Right? It's Christ that's my hope. It's what Christ accomplished that did it. And all of that, all of, of this Right? All of this is brought to me by Christ when I receive the reconciliation. I don't earn it. Right? It's justified by faith. 5.1, I receive the reconciliation. Verse 10, the only thing I can do over here in my guilt and in my rebellion is turn to God through Jesus Christ, because he's the only answer I could ever have. And, and it's not that I add anything to what Jesus done. Even my act of faith doesn't add anything to Christ. Right? It's not, it's not Jesus' death and then me wrapping it in my faith that makes it effective. It's me recognizing that this is the only hope. And it's been offered to me as a gift. And I receive it. I put my trust in Christ, in Christ alone, that someday, someday when I stand before God, that Jesus will own me. He will say, he's mine. I died for him. Enter into the joy of my salvation. It won't be anything about me serving Christ. It won't be anything about me being whatever. It will be a plea entirely centered on Jesus Christ. And it will be full of confident joy. Because look what verse 11 says. We exalt in God. Right? We have a confident joy in God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I don't want us to miss this because here's the thing that we could miss, right? We could go, there's judgment coming and wrath and we're saved from the wrath of God. Whew, that's the big thing. Actually, it's not. It's God. Right? The whole point of me needing reconciliation is reconciled to God. It's not just God sort of throws open to the gate to the eternal playland of heaven and I get to romp around and be fine without God. It actually is that I am going to go to have fellowship with the Lord who purchased me and it will be paradise, his face forever to behold. Right? Jesus is going to be the center and we will exalt in God through him because God took us from a garden in which mankind had great fellowship with God, but we rejected and rebelled against it to a new heavens and new earth in which we have fellowship with God. We serve him and we worship him and we do so without sin without sorrow, without suffering, we will enjoy the presence of God and be his people. He will dwell among us. That's where it's all headed. And that's why right now, we are joyfully confident in God, no matter what else is happening. Right? No matter what else is going on, we know God keeps his promises. And since Christ died for us, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can have confidence in the midst of a broken and sin-cursed world. And we know that you intend to dwell with us again. That we will be your people and you will be our God that Christ will rule in righteousness, having received the inheritance of the nations, and we will enjoy his presence forever. We who were sinners condemned have been forgiven and given the blessings that pour from the hand of Christ. We who were hostile against you, you have brought us near to yourself through Christ. Lord, we rejoice in this. We give you praise. We want to plead with you that you would open the eyes of understanding here this morning so that no one is trusting in their own righteousness. No one is trusting in someone other than Jesus Christ. That you would receive all the glory you deserve being the righteous and holy God who loves and provides righteousness and reconciliation in Christ. May we come to you through him ever and always. Every approach to you is through Christ. And every blessing that comes from your hand comes to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. May you cement our hearts in this hope so that it will be unshakable, invincible in the face 
of all that comes against us in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.